Welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today, we'll talk about The Iliad by Homer. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. This is the first of two consecutive shows on The Iliad, two shows, two guests, and two ways of looking at this epic poem. Our guest today is Emily Wilson, a professor of classical studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Her brand new translation of the Iliad is now available from W.W. Norton and Company. She also has published translations of Sophocles, Euripides, and Seneca, as well as The Odyssey by Homer, about which she has podcasted with us previously. She joins us by Zoom as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Emily, welcome back to the Great Books Podcast. Thank you for having me again. It's great to talk to you. Why is The Iliad by Homer a great book? It's a great book for so many reasons. I hope I won't try to answer all of the ways it's great in one sentence, but it's a great book because it has such compelling characters, such a compelling and in a way surprising approach to a much older mythic story about the Trojan War. And these intense feelings and themes of violence, rage, grief, community, what drives people apart and what what binds them together. Those themes, and and maybe especially the theme of mortality, are still with us and resonate with our culture today, but of course resonated also in archaic Greece when this great poem was produced. We're going to talk about all that, the great characters in this work, the theme of mortality, why this work endures, the art of translation itself. Emily, let's jump right in with the famous first line of the Iliad by Homer. And I'm going to read just the first few words as you translate them in your new edition of the Iliad, which is this quote, goddess sing of the cataclysmic wrath of great Achilles. There's more, but I'll pause there. This is the first big choice you face as a translator, isn't it? What words to use in these opening lines? Absolutely, yes. So the original first line is So it begins very emphatically with this word for rage or anger, or as I translate it, wrath, which is described in the original as ulomener. It's deadly or catastrophic, or as I say, cataclysmic. It's a, it's a kind of anger that goes beyond normal mortal human anger. It's deadlier in its results. The wrath of Achilles is almost like the wrath of a god. So that's why I choose the word wrath, because I think it has those connotations of divine wrath, of of an anger that's more than humans are usually able to perpetrate against one another. And it's partly because Achilles is the son of a goddess, and he's able to commit extraordinary kinds of violence, that he causes a massacre on his own side, which is usually not something that leaders want to achieve. And he does that because of his overwhelming wrath against his fellow Greek, Agamemnon, which we learn about in the first book of the poem. And then as the poem goes on, that wrath changes into a wrath against the Trojans, and especially Hector, once Hector kills Achilles' dearest friend, Patroclus. The first word is goddess. Who's the goddess? The goddess presumably is the muse. So in my translation, I make it the first word because I want the line to end end emphatically with wrath. And it's hard to have the same word order in English as in Greek, because, of course, English is a language where the relationship of terms depends so heavily on word order. And I want the emphasis to really feel like we land with something emphatic with wrath. The invocation also of a divine figure right at the start of the poem, it happens at the start of the Odyssey and in the start of the Iliad. In both poems, um, 
the poet or the speaker invokes a goddess, um, presumably a muse at the start, which I think cues us in also to the fact that this is going to be a poem about divine action as well as human action. And it's supposedly also inspired by divine, you know, divine inspiration breathes through this poem and tells us about something which is bigger than any individual human being. So what's an epic poem? We always talk about the Iliad as an epic poem, and I, I think it means a, not just a really long poem. What, <laughs> what, what is an epic poem? So we get epic, we get the word, English word epic from a Greek word epos, which just means word or story. Um, it's a but it's an epic poem is a particular kind of poetic story. In archaic Greece, the Clea Andron, the famous deeds of mythical human beings, mythical men, were composed in dactylic hexameter. So it's marked as a particular kind of poetry in the original, partly by its meter. It's a meter that's different from the meter of later Greek drama or the meter of the meter of lyric, which is more complex and more varied, it's it's designed for it's a meter designed for storytelling and designed for grand oral performances of storytelling about the days of heroes before our own time. And what does the name of the poem mean? The Iliad. What's an Iliad? <laughs> the Iliad is a poem about Ilium. So Ilium is a Ilios is another term for Troy. Um, so there were several mythical before the time of the where the Iliad itself is set, in which Priam is the king of Troy. He has ancestors, one of whom was called Tros, and another was called Ilos. And those ancestors have given their names to the city. So the city is called either the city of this ancient king Tros, so it's Troy, or it's called. Ilium, which is the which is connected with this mythical king Elos. So it's a, it's a poem about the city of Troy. Now, at the top of the show, you mentioned the surprising approach that Homer takes, and in the introduction to your new translation of the Iliad, you have this line: "Quote the poem avoids all the obvious highlights of the traditional story." Unquote. What do you mean by that? I think people who haven't read the Iliad may be very surprised to realize there's no Trojan horse in this story about Troy, which is weird. And it was, it's not that that's weird just from a modern perspective. That's a weird choice that was weird already in the sixth or seventh century BCE. The Iliad, I think people may also sort of not realize if you haven't read much about it or haven't read it, um, isn't the beginning of a tradition, but in a way it's the end of a tradition. It comes at the end of centuries and centuries during which the Greek-speaking world didn't have reading or writing. And it's a culmination of a long, long tradition of poetic storytelling about these mythical days, including the Great Trojan War between the Greeks and the Trojans. And it takes the, that huge body of myth about the Trojan War, uses those characters and those themes, but does some very, very surprising things with it. For instance, by, as I said, eliminating, the, not telling us about all the things we may expect in a story about the Trojan War. It doesn't start at the beginning. It doesn't end at the end. We don't get the original abduction of Helen by Paris. We don't get the gathering of the ships at Aulis. Um, we don't get the, the fall of the city. We don't get the Trojan horse. We don't get the death of a we get foreshadowings and echoings of all those things. But the poem itself focuses on this, I think, quite strange and thought-provoking idea, which is that it, the Trojan War isn't just about Greeks versus Trojans, but about Greeks versus Greeks, Trojans versus Trojans, and Olympian deities versus each other. So it's about conflict within societies as well as about conflict across societies. So give us a little historical background to the extent that we even can know the real history of 
the Greeks and the Trojans and this war. Was there actually a Trojan war at some point, or is this just a legend to the ancient Greeks? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, there certainly was a historical city of Troy, but there were probably several Trojan wars. I mean, what we learned from archaeologists who've been excavating at Troy um, for you know over a century now, they've learned a lot about the different layers of settlement, destruction, resettlement that have happened uh, that happened in that place, Troy, it's quite possible that there were several conflicts. And this this is a set of legends that's based on a real-life geographical place, but then reinventing that real-life geographical place, where presumably there were, you know, it was known to Greek speakers as a stop on trading routes. It was it was at some points in distant distant to the to the time of the poem's composition, just distant history as a place that presumably had once been much wealthier than it was at the time of the poem's singing. Um, I don't think we can read the Iliad thinking this is a historical document about a guy called Achilles. I think we can think read the Iliad thinking this is a a poem which is both mythical and historical. It both makes up a fictional story about conflict, and it also draws on both sort of folk memories of an earlier age when there were powerful leaders, but the Greek-speaking world was not beginning to be united in the way that it was at the, in the time of the 7th and 6th centuries in a sort of pre-Greek city-state time. And it also sort of imagines how might this rele- this myth resonate with the time of the poem's composition at a time of increased pressure on Greek communities to to come together because there was much more impulse towards Pan-Hellenism, towards Greek speakers trying to think of themselves as a more united community than they ever had in sort of pre-archaic Greek-speaking times. Now let's turn to Achilles. We've mentioned him a couple of times. He's our he's our major figure. If we have to identify one major figure in the Iliad, it's it's Achilles. We learn in that first line that he has anger issues, I guess. But tell us, uh, Emily, who is Achilles? Achilles is the son of a sea goddess, Thetis, by a mortal man, Peleus. We, another of the legends that doesn't come explicitly in the Iliad itself is that there was a, a prior legend that the gods wanted Thetis to be yoked to a mortal because there was a prophecy that that her son would be greater than his father. So Achilles is is a mortal man who's the son of a goddess and has this potential to be greater than, certainly than his father Peleus. He's the most swift-footed of the Greek warriors. So we see in the Greek encampment, as the poem evokes it, all these different leaders from different parts of the Greek-speaking world. Achilles himself comes from Thea and leads a an army who are called the Myrmidons, the ant people. He's a quick-footed warrior who's also a quick talker. And what happens in the first book of the poem is that his honor is diminished by a conflict with his fellow Greek leader, Agamemnon, who's the brother of Menelaus, the husband or ex-husband of Helen of Troy, Helen of Sparta, who's become Helen of Troy, thanks to the abduction of Helen by Paris of Troy. So they they have a terrible quarrel, Achilles and Agamemnon, in the first book of the poem over um, each of them wanting to claim the enslaved women that they've captured. Agamemnon takes Achilles' woman from him. And that isn't just a loss of a particular enslaved woman, it's also a diminution of his honour. Achilles, being the son of a goddess, has a clear knowledge of something which for 
other Greek warriors or other warriors on either side is only a possibility, which is that he may be, which is that he knows for sure if he stays at Troy, he'll win glory, but he will lose his life. He knows for sure he's going to die if he fights here. So honor for Achilles is very, very high stakes because he knows that he's giving up his life or the possibility of life beyond this coming year by staying to fight at Troy. And then with the diminution of his honor, when Agamemnon publicly humiliates him, he hasn't even got honor. So he's giving up his life for nothing. So he goes crying to his mother, who, as I said, is a goddess, to ask her to restore his honor, which she does, as I said, by this whole paradoxical means of having him sit out of the battle and do nothing. So his swift feet aren't moving for most of the poem. And for many, many books, we don't even get to see Achilles fight, which is the thing he, he's above all great at is fighting, and yet he doesn't do it. And in his absence, um, you said Achilles is the main character. In a sense, Hector is also the main character. This is a message from our friends at American Habits from the State Policy Network. We the people, do you ever think about what that means and what happened to it? We the people certainly did not mean an imperial city full of unelected bureaucrats deciding everything from kindergarten curricula to nursing home funding formulas. We the people mean self-government, a free people deciding most things in their families and communities and delegating some authority to their towns and states while passing along just a small amount of that power to the national government. How did things get so upside down at American Habits? We tell stories of real people with real solutions, all working to restore federalism and self-government. If you're a public official, come get involved. If you're a citizen, come and see the new standard for American leadership. No matter who you are, come help us renew the forgotten but not lost habit of American self-government. Visit AmericanHabits.org to learn more. That's AmericanHabits.org. So book one, where we meet Achilles and and go into the poem, of course, you, you call in your translation, the quarrel. And this quarrel is with Agamemnon. It's not the only quarrel, though, that Achilles will have. We're also going to have a quarrel with Hector. He's a hero of the Trojans, a great warrior. Who is Hector and how does he come to quarrel with Achilles? Yes. So Hector is the son of Priam, king of Troy, whom I've mentioned before, and Hecuba, queen of Troy. He's the most powerful and most talented warrior on the Trojan side. And Priam is presented as an old man who's no longer able to lead his people into battle. So Hector is the primary agent of the Trojan counteroffensive against the Greek besiegers. Hector is presented as this extraordinary character who's def who's defined by his desire to continue to be in that role of the greatest Trojan warrior and to to do his I'm hesitating over the word duty and to fulfill that social obligation to be the best warrior, which means always taking the highest risk possible strategy, always be at the front of the charge, even if that means he's risking his life. And potentially also then, if he dies, his city will fall and his his wife and family will be enslaved or killed. So he's a great warrior. He fights a lot. We also get a glimpse of his family life, as you mentioned. His wife is Andromache. There's a very touching scene with, with his son. What is Hector like in the domestic sphere? Yes, we get a very rich picture of his family life. We get re repeated scenes of his family, his mother, father, and his wife Andromache begging him not to go fight in the most dangerous way possible. And in that scene at the end of book six, Hector tells Andromache that he does care. And clearly he does care. He loves his, loves his son, who's frightened of his warrior helmet. Um, 
And in a way, the son is right to be, Astyanax is right to be frightened of that helmet because it's because Hector insists on wearing that helmet, the glittering helmet, which defines his role as a warrior, that his, the baby's daddy will die and the baby will get thrown from the wall. We see both this intimacy of Hector's love for his wife, love for his son, love for his parents, and also the fact that he knows that if he doesn't fight in the most dangerous way he can, he'll, he'll lose the status that he has. He'll lose his honor. He'll be ashamed. And the people of Troy will judge him and will no longer think of him as the greatest, best, most glittering warrior that they have. Now they have a conflict. They fight these two and Achilles kills Hector. What happens after that? Yes. So Achilles kills Hector after a long sort of buildup of trying to kill Hector and killing many, many other Trojans after Achilles dear friend Patroclus has been killed by Hector. And then after that, you might think killing the, the person who killed the one you loved would be enough, that he he's accomplished his revenge. And yet it's not enough for Achilles. Rather than just leave the body be or just strip off his armour, instead Achilles drags the dead body of Hector behind his chariot and keeps on dragging and despoiling the corpse, dragging it round and round the tomb of Patroclus, insisting that he's never going to give up on trying to humiliate his enemy, even now his enemy is dead. And he refuses to give back the body to Hector's grieving family who want to be able to to bury him properly. And so this is a desecration of Hector's body and recovering the body for Hector's family, the Trojans generally. This is really important. Is, is this a kind of pagan version of a corporal work of mercy they want the body back because you've got to do something with it now yes i mean the the gods intervene at that stage i mean in book 24 the last book of the poem the gods intervene and say this is too much that the desecration of a corpse for this long is going beyond the bounds of what's possible within one might say the bonds of humanity, but even the gods seem to think there's something too much about that level of desecration of a body. I mean, I think it's important to realize that Hector is imagined still as Hector. This is a world in which there isn't a, a sort of post-Christian idea of a total separation of soul and body, whereby the soul might might be still okay, even if the body isn't okay. There's an idea that what, what Achilles is doing is dishonoring Hector by treating his body in this way. And so there's this sort of terrible wrath and grief that go on forever, which Achilles is sort of trying to um, keep on punishing Hector forever. And the gods and humans all agree that it's too much. And eventually Hector is returned by Achilles to his grieving father Priam, who comes... Um, on this dangerous mission through the Greek camp, the camp of his enemies, to beg for his son's body back. The poem is dominated by men and their deeds, but there are lots of women in the poem, and they're important, and the, and the poem ends with women. How does it end, and what role do women play in the Iliad? Yes, the poem ends with the voices of three mortal women lamenting for Hector and also lamenting for in a way, their own futures, because the death of Hector signals the beginning of the end for Troy, and all of these women are no longer going to be in their homes after the city is destroyed. They won't have a home anymore, um, except for Helen, who will go back to her original home. Um, the poem be- sort of begins, in a way, with a quarrel that centers on how how do mortal men lay claim to mortal women? As I said, the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon is over a woman. Um, so this is sort of bookending of 
men trying to lay claim to women's bodies. And I guess I would also want to say that it's a poem that also has these very, very well-realized divine female characters. Um, we talked about the goddess Thetis. The characters of Hera and of Aphrodite and of Athena are also really essential in the poem's world. That they're, they're, In each, each case, we sort of see how for a mortal woman, there may be no possibility of saying very much about your feelings except for grief. But for a, for immortal goddesses, they can express rage and the desire to destroy their enemies, just as a powerful mortal man can do. Now, you are the translator of the Iliad. Your new edition is just out. You've been working on it for years. You've already translated the Odyssey before, before this one. What do you know today about the Iliad that you didn't know before you started to translate it? It's a difficult question because I've been thinking about and reading this poem for so many years. I mean, of course, long before I started the task of producing a, a publishable translation, I'd you know still been reading it and thinking about it. And it's hard to reconstruct where was I six or seven years ago with this poem. I mean, I think one thing I, I could say is that um, we haven't talked about the third mortal warrior who's essential in the in the poem's plot, which is Agamemnon. And I think years ago, I was somewhat unsympathetic to Agamemnon, who's constantly being presented as making terrible leadership mistakes, as in the first quarrel of, of Agamemnon and Achilles, and then never taking personal responsibility for them, which doesn't necessarily seem like the ideal um, response of a leader to his own fallibility. And in the course of working on the poem and sort of thinking through how how does how does this Homeric narrative al- allow us to understand and empathize with all of the characters, human and divine, I felt actually there is room for a lot of empathy for Agamemnon. He's in a terrible, difficult position, trying to keep these completely disparate troops together and trying to manage a character like Achilles. I would not want to be in charge of managing Achilles. So I, I have different levels of empathy for even the characters that I might have even you know, ten or five years ago, I might have felt thought, mm, "Not sure how this poem is wanting me to think about Agamemnon." I think the poem wants us to empathize, even with Agamemnon. Do you have a favorite character? I remember when I read it long ago, back in college days. I I kind of liked Hector. Uh, I liked him better than Achilles, as I as I recall. But do you have a favorite character, even a minor one, who just jumps out at you as interesting? I mean, maybe follow up to what I was saying about Agamemnon. I have a sort of renewed sense of appreciation of even the the minor characters. I mean, I think when I first started reading the Iliad, I thought this poem obviously belongs to Achilles. He's the most intense and most fascinating character ever. And now I think I I certainly love Achilles. I love the intensity with which his grief and rage is represented. But I also have, I suppose, new appreciation for, yes, the minor characters, for characters like Iris, the rainbow goddess, who has such a difficult time communicating with these feuding gods, with Idomeneus, the leader of the Cretans, who has this sort of frenemy rivalry with his um, sidekick, Meriones. There are so many wonderful minor characters who may not be sort of part of the main plot of the poem, but are fabulous. Diomedes also is an amazing character and he obviously he dominates in book five and has this power to wound even the gods. Um, but I think that the way that Diomedes is an essential character in the Greek council as well as on the battlefield is really interesting. Odysseus steps on stage in the sequel of the of the Odyssey, which you also have translated. But who is Odysseus in the Iliad? 
Yeah, Odysseus is a fascinating character, of course, in both poems. He's in a very different environment in the Iliad versus the Odyssey. The Odyssey presents him not never sort of surrounded by his own peers, by fellow Greek fighters, and we're all working for the same cause. Um, in the Odyssey, he's always either interacting with members of his household or with members of some other household because he's lost and trying to survive in all these different places. In the Odyssey, we, I mean, in the Iliad, we see how essential Odysseus is in the council meetings of the Greeks, that he has, um, in a way, similar to what he has in the Odyssey of a practical focus on survival and the belly, that he's the one who insists, even if, if Achilles is too mad and too grief-stricken to eat, the troops still need to eat. And Odysseus is the one who's pragmatic enough to say, we need to make sure everyone has a meal before they go back to fighting. And, and Odysseus is also the one who's able to stick it out. I mean, one of his crucial epithets is polluclas. He's much enduring Odysseus. He's, he's both the one who always has a solution or a fix to things, but also if it's going to take 10 years to get home, he's able to stick it out. And we see that quality in the Iliad where he's stuck all by himself on the battlefield. And he has this powerful and memorable internal monologue where he's asking himself, should I stay and keep on fighting even though I'm all by myself? Should I run away? And he's, he sticks with it because he's got that capacity to stick with the, with apparently impossible situations. You translated the Odyssey before you translated the Iliad. And I should point out that we did a show on the Odyssey. It's, it's episode number 39 in this podcast series. If listeners want to go back and listen to it, but you did the Odyssey before the Iliad. Isn't that doing it backwards? Why did you translate the Odyssey first? Really, it was because I was asked in that order, um, because I was working on the Norton Anthology of World Literature, which has the Odyssey in its in its entirety in the anthology, because it's much more frequently read by high school students and freshmen in college um, as a course, as a, te as a text that can be foundational for a intro to literature or intro to world lit survey. It's a kind of a shame that more people don't read the whole of the Iliad, but more people don't read the whole of the Iliad. Um, so that was that was why the publisher approached me in that order. I mean, I love both poems. I think I think if I had to had a gun to my head, I'd have to say I love the Iliad even more. I love, but but I think they they go together, and one can read them in any order. I mean, despite the the, the sequence of the story, I think any reading of one enriches a reading of the other. Why do you think the Iliad is less read? and less appreciated than the Odyssey? I think it's partly just that it is very, very dark in a way. I mean, we emphasized mortality and conflict as central themes in the Iliad. And those are tough things to be contemplating for 24 books of poetry. So I think it's partly also just this, the worry on the part of instructors and perhaps also publishers that maybe this is too much of a downer. Maybe maybe the kids can't take it, that this is a poem which really always takes you to contemplating how easily people can die and the deadly consequences of rage and grief. And that's a hard thing to contemplate. At the start of the show, I asked you, why is this a great book? And that's a kind of a ridiculous question when you're talking about the Iliad, because this is the first great book, isn't it? I mean, if you were... Emily, if you're, if you're putting together a syllabus for the great books or maybe just a reading program for people who want to sample the great books, you start with the Iliad, don't you? Well, you can start with Gilgamesh. You can start with Egyptian literature. I mean, you can start earlier than, than the Iliad. And one, I think one can do interesting things with having kids read, the, read Gilgamesh and the Iliad next to each other because they both have this concern with um, human mortality and 
even the fact that even great kings, great leaders are subject to mortality. So what drove you to translate? Well, one thing was just, I mean, one thing was just that I love these texts so much, uh, but then that wouldn't be enough in itself because, you know, I can go on loving them quietly in my, in my own room or with, own, with my own students without feeling the world needs another translation. Um, one of the big things that drove me was the sense that there's something huge missing in almost all 20th and 21st century English translations of the Homeric poems, which is that they mostly have no meter. They're free verse, they may be laid out as verse, or they're laid out as prose, but in either case, they don't have a regular rhythm. The Homeric poems were usually experienced orally as oral performance texts in antiquity, and they're, they have this musical regular rhythm which is what I wanted to echo in the translations by using a regular iambic pentameter to cue the reader in to please read out loud if you feel so inspired or listen to the audiobook. And to the and even if you're not reading out loud, I hope you can hear in your mind there's a rhythm to this to this language. It's not a a prose text like a novel. As a translator, you're making choices all the time with every line, every word, I imagine. And one of the major conflicts, I suppose, or tensions is accuracy versus artistry. Is that something you struggle with or how do you deal with it as a translator? You know, I tend to think that's a false binary because if the original is artistic, then it's a, it's inaccurate to make it inartistic. I mean, I think one of the things that I want to be accurate about is if there's a particular poetic effect in the original, like, is there a lot of alliteration or is this speech heartbreaking? Does it make me cry when I read the Greek? Those kinds of things are something I want to evoke accurately, just as I want to evoke the semantic meanings. I mean, I think a translator's job is not just to do the kind of translation that my students do for exams, where the point of it is to say, I learned my vocabulary and I understood the syntax. That's not the point of a translation, which what I'm trying to do is evoke accurately the whole experience, the experience of the characters, the experience of the music, the experience of what does this feel like and sound like technically, poetically, artistically, psychologically, in all the ways that it's a gripping work of poetic art. How did you discover Homer and maybe Greek literature generally yourself and come to want to become a scholar in it. I suppose you could have been a scholar of Shakespeare, Jane Austen, but you chose you chose these works and you chose this work to translate. How did it all start for you? I mean, as a kid, I was interested in the retellings of Greek myths that were available to me as a kid. I performed in a elementary school play of the Odyssey. I started learning Latin and then a year later Greek in high school. And I was just blown away by how exciting it is to learn these very ancient languages and read these very ancient texts and have a sense that through doing that, you can, you know, it's not actually a time machine, but you can sort of feel that you can understand something about this very alien, distant, and yet so deeply human world and culture and uh, and, and also that there's something so intense and so gripping about the texts that we have from antiquity, especially epic and ancient tragedy. I mean, I guess I would also say that I I, I, like, I like Shakespeare too. I did, I did an English degree as well as my classic classics degrees. And that's also part of my background as a translator is that I care about the English language and I care about trying to think through how can I evoke the long history of Anglophone poetry through how I translate these text from an era that's far, far older than anything in the English language. One more question. Let's wrap up with this. This poem is so old, as you say, it's, it's distant from us in so many ways. 
But what's the case for reading the Iliad today in, in the 2020s? Does it say something to us now? Yeah, I think it's I think the case is partly what you just said. I think there's something really valuable about encountering a text from a very alien and very distant culture. I think we can be too wrapped up in the present and too limited by the present. We can think this is the only world there's ever been if we don't know anything about worlds that are very distant from us. So I think part of the value of the Homeric poems and of studying ancient literature and ancient history in general is that, that it's not the same as the present. It gives us a, set, a way out of our own egotistic presentism. And then the other part of that is that the Iliad does actually resonate with themes in, that are utterly present in the world now. One theme is we've mentioned violence, we've mentioned mortality, we've men mentioned rage and grief. The Iliad is also set in a world which is about to come to an end, that we're told very explicitly in the middle of the poem in Book 12 that the gods will destroy everything on this plane. They'll flood it and there will be nothing left. Many of us live in places that won't be inhabitable in 10 or 20 or 100 years' time. Emily Wilson, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about The Iliad by Homer. Thank you. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Please send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at heymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at heymiller. Last of all, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.